it's it's a really cool topic, and and I really appreciate you asking me to come on. Oh heck, there's an interesting situation with what's going on right now that I think makes it a, makes this a, a really good conversation between you and I. There there's certain there are certain points in time where it works better than others, and I think this yeah. is I think this is one of those times that knowing you is a good thing because we can't see each other any other way. <laughs> Like we can't visit each other. Yeah, or... yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's also, there's also that. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I do. You're listening to the Can't Sell This podcast with your hosts Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. My name is Wesley Grubbs, um, and I run a data visualization studio based in Berkeley, California, called Pitch Interactive. Uh, we've been doing data visualizations for, let's say, coming on 15 years. 15. Um, yeah. I think one of the interesting things about you would probably be that we met a long time back, like, and I think it may have been before you were doing a lot of data visualization stuff, and I've just watched mm-hmm. your career and been so blown away. And that's why I'm, like, really stoked about having you on is that, you know, watching from afar since we don't live in anywhere near each other it's it's been a, it's been a real real joy you know <laughs> thank you yeah we met at uh flash conferences i'm sure probably in toronto no brighton and... we met in brighton oh right flash oh, the beach i remember that i remember that actually quite clearly that was oh. a really fun night well one of us do one of us does anyways. <laughs> that's okay it's you know we had a great time mm-hmm well, and, and here's where, here's where I'd like to uh, like to lead into it. And one of the things is, is that you know after a number of years of of being a, a data visualization person and starting pitch, is that you looped in with Jer and, and Dave Schroeder, Jer Thorpe and Dave Schroeder to start IO mm-hmm. Festival. And part yeah. of that, could you, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the mandate behind IO. Um, <clears throat> the mandate. Well, so we did. Dave was running Flashbelt for a number of years and um, it was a very, and, and I went there, actually that was my first conference to speak at and it was a total disaster. Uh, the early, conference early was or your, your talk? My, my talk. <laughs> I was doing, he asked me to come and do a workshop because I was like, oh, I really want to come and, and speak there, whatever that means. And I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Flashbelt, IO, they're in Minneapolis, so very nearby. And Dave asked me if I would come and do a two hour workshop on flash. Right. And so I did like live coding of like building and making like a photo gallery or something like that. It was so bad that I remember Robert Reinhardt came up to me after it and I didn't even know who he was and put his hand on my shoulder and he was like, dude. And oh, the, next, the next year, it was interesting because that was a year I was like working at an ad agency. I was heavy in, in programming, but my passion was really in data and right. like, and generative art and m- melding both of those together. Like my background's in economics and data analysis, and I like the creative world. And I was just really constantly finding a way to merge those two. Mm-hmm. And, and I started reading John Maida books. And, you know, and um, was really inspired by it. And so after that workshop for the next year, Flash Bell, I remember Dave and I met at South by Southwest and I was walking around with him, basically pestering him 
begging him to let me come back and actually do a talk right on my, on my own topic because I need <laughs> redemption. <laughs> and oh, and man. he said, okay. And then I came back and I was talking about data, my very first talk on data visualization. Right. And I, it was early, early on, but I the passion was already there. And I remember that one, Jared Tarbell was in the audience hmm. and he came up to me and was just, he remembers it even years later. Uh, just a couple of, 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 you know, sort of facts and, and things that I was talking about. And he and I became friends from that point. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of, the fuse was lit. And I'm really glad that I sort of bugged the shit out of Dave. <laughs> and, um, and you know, it, that's kind of where things started. I was, I was like, wait, I don't want to do ad agency. I, I don't want to persuade. I yeah. want to, perf- I want to inform. Yeah. There's a difference between the two. And I realized like my passion was, I love the creative process and there's a lot you can learn from working at an ad agency. There's a whole lot like dealing with schedules and clients and everything. Hmm. But my passion was informing people. Okay. There's a really complicated story here. There's a really complicated relationship with this data. Like what's the way, how can we communicate this? So people are interested in it. Right. Right. That, you know, the interesting thing about, having that kind of passion and this is this is what the podcast is about the the podcast tends to be it started out about uh started out being about failing like not being able to do what you want to do and then i I, myself and my co-host became more interested in how do you get to do what you want to do and i i think Mm -hmm. you know it was really interesting watching you change from this developer that you know was doing you're still a developer obviously you do programmatic work but Mm -hmm. to be more wrapped up in the data, you know, to be more, to, to be interested in the story behind the data, to be interested in, in how to actually tell the story that the data is trying to get through to people. And yeah. I think that like seeing probably the first piece that I remember vividly, of course, of yours is the drone, drone strikes, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I wondered what, what made you want to do that, that, that part, that piece. I mean, we did a, okay. So about the drones piece, it visualized every fatality of U.S. drone strikes from 2004 until 2014. Mm-hmm. And um, by that time, by the time that we had built that, we were already pretty established as a studio. Like we had work in a in an exhibit in the MoMA, and we were right. commissioned by museums and Wired and Scientific American, a lot of publications. So, I mean, we, we felt like we definitely had a footing. And the good thing about that, when you have that footing is you, and you earn it um, because we worked our asses off, yeah. is that you, you have that freedom, that creative freedom to say no a lot yeah. more easily. And so we sort of had this mantra in the studio of like, listen, we've got to do passion projects. If we're not doing passion projects. Like, then what are we doing? You yeah. know? Um, and the reason why, and this was probably a talk by like Joshua Davis or something, but I think he said a quote that I kind of vaguely remember from back in the day. It's like, do what you love because even, and for free, like he always does his own personal experimental stuff. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is the more you do that, the more people are going to associate you with that. Yeah. You know? and, and that's, I mean, the funny thing is that, that that's, I remember that too. I remember the, the idea that, you know, it was a talk. He's it's a talk he gives once a year. You know, like he gives one talk a year, and and that's what he's 
he does for every show or whatever. But I remember that comment too, is like, do the thing you want to do. And then you'll start being recognized as the guy that does that thing, the person that does that thing. And I, you know, that happened to me a bunch of times um, as well. And, and so, you know, I apologize if I, the way I said it was like, I know you from the drone thing, but that, that to me is like, it it was just one of those. Well, I mean, I think the thing was, is it was a lightning rod. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, it cast a real, it cast a really harsh light on the hope president. You know what I mean? Like, like seeing, yeah. like just, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of put it into words for me. It, it just that, you know, people had this sort of, this is where he exists. You watch that drone thing, see the, the frequency change, like just go bananas and realize, oh, he's just another, he's just another president. You know, you know. Well, Obama, yeah. But the thing about him is, like, he said very clearly, he's going to invest more in technology in the military mm-hmm. and pull more troops out of off the ground. Right. And that's what you do with drone strikes. You know, there yeah. you basically have pilots in Arizona or different, you know, parts of the world like that are that are piloting these drones. Um, yeah. The thing about it too, with our personal projects that we did in the drones piece, was that nobody paid us for it is yeah. that we do these work work, we decide what it is. It's something we really care about. And the thing is, is up until this report came out right before we built this piece in mm-hmm. 2012 or 2013. And it was called Living Under Drones. And it was a report on the effects of drone strikes on civilians. And it was independently written by Stanford and NYU. Right. And it was the first independent study that basically showed the effects of drones on civilians that showed that this is like the Taliban's number one recruiting tool now, not Guantanamo, but this, and that it was actually proliferating a lot of the problems too. And so we reached out to Stanford and then they put us in touch with the, comp- with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism mm-hmm. in London, who was collecting all this data. <clears throat> and so, um, and as we were reading it, we we're just kind of blown away. Like, wow, we thought that, that we lived in like Star Trek time. Like this is precision strikes, right. and, you know, but really and, I mean, not it, at all. Yeah. We just really weren't thinking about it much, you know, mm. drone strikes, whatever, you know, but then once we start seeing the numbers, it's like, Holy shit. You know, you start reading like, Oh, a grandmother and her two grandchildren were struck mm-hmm. because they were standing in a field and a pilot because of the shitty video footage thought that it was maybe an insurgent with weapons that he was carrying, but it was a grandmother right. with, grandchildren and and then they have this whole technique called double tapping so they hit a building and villagers come to the village to try to help and they tap it again they hit it again and then those people die as well right there's no regard to human you know to like humanity and and whatever and so it's like yeah obama did what he said he was going to do but it's definitely and there's a there was a report by new york times that came out that actually said that many of these strikes obama personally approved right and so, yeah, it became, it, there was definitely a point in time where I was like, fuck that guy. You know? <laughs> yeah, but not, <laughs> but once 2016 happens, you realize, oh yeah. no, shoot, that's not, this is not and cool. now that we're 2020 and it's yeah. like, oh my God. 2020, where anybody. is that? Where is that guy? Heck, where's Reagan, man? Um, Howard Taft. I mean, yeah. anybody. You know? And I wondered, you know, actually I wondered if, you know, having seen that, and then it, it's interesting. There, there, there has been more of a 
I'm trying to remember what the show was where it was drone drone pilots and oh, oh. gosh. The guy who's like he would like pilot all day and then he would go home and like barbecue with his family and yeah. he was getting like PTSD from it and everything. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember the name of that, but no, yeah. whatever. I'm not looking it up. That's to me it's just mm-hmm. it's just one of those interesting things where, you know, they, they show a lot like it now in, in um T V like uh that um I'll remember the name. The one with John Krasinski where he plays Jack Ryan. Um, whenever they do drone strikes, it's always a very dispassionate, like, okay, here we go. But like, once they do, it's like, yeah, but you, you, right. you think there have been some situations where they'll show the aftermath and realize like these people are, that's what they hear, right? The yeah. sound of a drone. They don't know if the drone's going to hit them. Anyways, don't I don't want to, they don't even hear anything. That's the thing. And in a lot of the languages there, because it's far Pakistan enough Pakistan and Afghanistan, they started using that in their language. Like, how we might say fuck off mm. there would be part of the in the arabic language or, or local language urdu um where people would say i hope you get droned wow you know and so that's, yeah it's that's crazy. bananas oh my god and the politics behind it because mm. we were flying the drones they were lifting off and landing on, in airports or from airports on pakistani soil right U.S. airports, and then we had an agreement with Pakistan that once the drones would retire, we'd give it to them, and then they fly it over Kashmir or whatever. Right, you know, right. It's a lot of politics there, and it was it was so dirty, you know. Mm-hmm. And you really saw after it wasn't just after Obama was elected; it was also after Musharraf resigned because he right. was like more militant. He wouldn't take shit from Washington as much. Mm-hmm. And the next guy who came in, I don't even remember his name, like much less significant, um, right. was just kind of basically mowed over by Washington. Wow. And, you know, um, and then, yeah, they happened. And th- these are only the drone strikes that we were able to get good data for. There's Yemen, there's Somalia, yeah, Afghanistan. Like, how are you going to collect that data? You can't, you know, mm-hmm. it's nobody's on the ground. They don't have journalists hanging around Yemen. It's super dangerous there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so okay, so let I, I don't want to say this to me. This is a, like it's a super fascinating topic, but but it is one small portion small. of the pitch. You know what I mean? And one small portion of you. I think it's amazing to hear that this was a it was a passion project. It wasn't like a paid job, and out of that comes you know opportunity and, and whatnot. I think one of the interesting mm-hmm. things in, in talking to you when we when we did hang out a couple a few years ago, four years ago. Um, was my mentioning the uh, illustration type work that you're doing for Scientific American, where you, 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 mm-hmm. you know, we talked about the, the various types of projects and you were saying, well, some work pays better than others, but some of it helps to really funnel the more interesting work or not the more interesting work, some of the more challenging work that would be more difficult to fund. Yeah. How do you balance that need for sort of a continued evolution of the job, the continued evolution of what you do Versus the need to fund a studio. I mean, yeah, especially a studio in the Bay Area. You know, it's right. It's, it's like as you would say in Oakland, it's hella expensive here. You know, <laughs> I don't. I'm not in Oakland. <laughs> we don't say hella anything. <laughs> Everything is hella here. But um, it's just in Berkeley, Oakland. I mean, it's all the you know same East Bay. Um, it's it, one of those things where you can't lose focus of 
what your heart's telling you. Like you right. got to listen to your heart. And for us, that heart sometimes is working with like really nerdy scientists from like Scientific American. We did this project this year on um, sequoia trees and it's, it's, it's not like a sexy, sexy project, but it's meaningful. It's really helpful, especially now that, um, you know, with the recent fires in California, mm-hmm. and there was a grove that was heavily damaged. Hmm. And, um, you know, these trees are 2000 years old right. and it's, and there's, we were working with this scientist who has all this dendritic, uh, I believe it's dendro. Oh shit. I'm going to totally, it's temperature data. When you look okay. at like sliced trees and you can see back in history, fire scars and temperature data and, and whatnot. I'm blaming the kombucha. Sure. Um, and he it's like 2000 years worth of data. Like how often do you get a 2000 year data set? That's amazing. And it's just like in the late nineties, he, they had a grant and he and his uh, team went out and just studied multiple groves throughout California. And it's just fascinating stuff. However, the people we worked with, they've never worked on a database project or an interactive project for that matter. Mm. So it was really, um, a little frustrating at times, you know, it's like, guys, we're kind of doing this almost for free. Right. Uh, and it's just, but you know what, it's kind of, it's one of those things where it's like, we're not going to let you go. We're going to get through this. Yeah. But I got to put my foot down on a couple of things. You right. Know? We're not going to have the sexy database explorative tool that we once envisioned. It's going to be much <laughs> more toned down because you just, you don't have all the, like they gave me like 20 different data sets. Right. And, or like, yeah, just play with this. I'm like, uh, no, this is like that's a year not how I. Thing. <laughs> yeah. That's this not is how like I work. On research. Like, <laughs> tell me what to look at. Right. So, but we do stuff like that, and I think to your to I guess to your point is, we really balance it. We we work with clients like eBay, and we do dashboards. And I think to the average person out there, they're boring. Right. But we make them not boring and they're actually, we enjoy it. You know, it's technically challenging. We've we've got to work with communicating with their CFO and with data analysts who usually hate Mm -hmm. colorful things and circles Mm -hmm. and whatever. Yeah. So we have to deal with that. But then on the other side, when we work with magazines like Scientific American, it's, it's nice. It's small. They usually never have a budget or it's it's a very small budget. And not to talk bad about them, just magazines, just look, don't have budgets, you know? Right. Um, but, but we're happy just doing the work and the return in that is that, Hey, what's your publication? You know, like how many issues of these are, do you send out? Cause that's kind of, it's kind of like free marketing if you will. For sure. Yeah. And that's where it comes out. So it's not just like, Oh, we're getting paid this. It's like, no, we're getting other stuff out of it. But also probably the most important part is the morale boost. Like we yeah. love it on as a team, you know, it keeps us excited about what we do. And as far as your your team goes, I, I just I, I just looked and you have a, it's a four people like that's or sorry five five uh, people four, kind of four but yeah oh. there are five people on the site yeah one drama it's, <laughs> there's I'm no kidding. drama I think it's really I'm just, just kidding <laughs> yeah our designer Tipo like he's been a brother to me I'll just yeah. say it you know he's absolutely been a brother to me I love him to death and we've mm-hmm. worked together for over twenty years. And we've known each other for a long time and, and he lives in Croatia and I knew him when I lived out there. Okay. But I think the pandemic is everyone's dealing with it in their own way. And and he's just kind of decided that 
you know, these, this isn't really computers aren't working for him right now. Like right. we're all stressed out in our own way, you know, and it's, it's, and I get it. It's kind of like the world looks like it's about to end. Mm-hmm. Why, why bother with anything? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Well, you know, I think, does he have kids? No, he doesn't, but he's, um, he's close with his family and his friends. And, and I think it's just part of like, he never wanted to move out here to the States. Right. You know, just the capitalism here and, and just the idea of monetary needs or whatever just kind of stresses him out. Always right. has. And he's, he's the smartest guy. now. I mean, he's so smart. He just, he's just not, he doesn't like crowds and is in his own place. And I think just for right now, <clears throat> while we're, transitioning and while we're dealing with COVID and the world right now, it's like, I've, I'm taking over all the design stuff. Right. It's, it's kind of been an actual, it's been nice. I have Mm -hmm. to say, because I've been in this executive role for so long where I direct and I make these decisions, but it's actually nice just like sitting down and working with illustrator or XD. Right. And, and actually like doing the work again, it's kind of weird, but it's, there's something about it that's, it's satisfying, you know, yeah. it's like, ah, uh, and it just kind of reminds me of how nice that is. You know, I, I, oh, I get to play with colors today. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, the client doesn't like this color. Well, fuck them. I'm going to give another color. Right. They're going to like even worse. Well, I think, you know, and, <laughs> I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to cut you off. I, you know, there, there's, there's a whole situation going on, you know, with, with COVID and um, COVID-19 and, and, and the world, but, you know, you, you've been working on a case mapper and you worked on this ebb and flow project. And I, mm-hmm. I wondered, was that, was that a contracted job or did you kind of go like, we're just going to reach out and find data or? The ebb and flow is ours. So that's okay. our passion project this year. It was literally like, oh my God, like as this was starting, I was like, the, the methodology that uses is a stream graph. Right. And I'm like, this thing is, we have no idea where this is going to go. And um, the only sort of data that we have from this is a pandemic that happened a hundred years ago. Right. That as we unravel more and more about that era, we realize it impacted society way more than we can imagine. You Mm -hmm. know, like Woodrow Wilson going to Paris and forming the League of Nations and um, France really wanted to punish Germany and Woodrow Wilson really did not want to. And he was adamant about fair... We're a League of Nations, and and then he came down with a mysterious flu, right. not mysterious, but a flu that everyone was happening at the time. And for three or so weeks, he was ill, like almost completely ill. And hmm. then after it, he came back to the table, and this um, the Spanish flu, or whatever you want to call it, the 1918 flu. Also, you know, a lot of uh, epidemiologists tie it to neurological. Uh, changes as well right and when he came back he pretty much caved on everything with france he's like all right we can punish germany and and basically it paved the way for world war ii right and he did get the league of nations that was what he really wanted but all these other issues that he was like fighting for before he just kind of like let go right and people close to him even noted that he had seemed like a different person and just all these all these things that were happening from that time and, and when we're looking at today with COVID-19, it's like there's so much we just can't predict. 
Yeah. And the ebb and flow is like this, just watching how things flow from day to day is going to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. And the way it looks now versus, and it, it changes every day. Every day it updates the data set from New York Times. Uh, state, it does every state. We have an, an international version. It's every country. Right. We just haven't released it yet. It's kind of slow and laggy because there's a lot more variables in there. Yeah. Um, and we need to QA it and everything. But um, it's just fascinating to watch things grow and, and change. Like my biggest concern right now is India. And I mean, they're just about to blow up and we're not hearing about them in the news at all. Weird. And the last couple, you know, week, two weeks, every day almost, you know, it's, it goes up and down, but it's, it's just progressively getting higher and higher and higher. Right. And they've been the number one as far as new confirmed cases every day for, for a while now. Hmm. And it's just going to keep growing considering their population and right. cultural. Density. Yeah, density, everything. So, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the other one you mentioned, the, um, the case mapper, that was done with Google and, and Stanford. Uh, okay. Uh, and that was yeah. fun because it was for local news networks, like so that, so that local news journalists don't have to deal with the data and trying to build in their own graphs. They can mm-hmm. just go here mm-hmm. and embed this within their own blogs and their own local like, news networks. And it's been really successful. Like People, look, look at how our county is doing, you know? Right. It's kind of how it's how it's been, and and it's it's been really good, and it's been interesting working with this data. Well, you know, I, I, after a year of working at uh, Ryerson University within their research group, it, everybody's into the amount of data they can have, and and like, oh, look what I've got, and and it was interesting how many times that the concept of how do you best visualize what you have would come up in conversation, and 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 the majority of the conversation would be them looking at me and me going, well, I'm not a data visualization person. <laughs> yeah. You know, do you want me to tie it to a motor and a bunch of lights? Like I can probably do that. And so like I, I would show them examples and, and more often than not, it would be you and Jer and, and, and saying like, look, why don't you just look at these things? Is any of what you have applicable to what you can see? Mm. Because, you know, I can't create tendrils out of nothing. I don't know what you want, you know? And, yeah. and do you run into the, into the, you know, the situation of too much, too much data for the subject? Like, has that ever happened? Um, yes. Yes. On, on multiple levels. Sometimes the too much data is, dude, you're giving us like 800 million rows of data. Right. We don't know what to do with this. Right. Uh, another way is like way too many attributes. You know, mm. there's too many, too many things you can't do at all. Uh, but I mean, we're, since we've done this for a while, I mean, it's, it's just a, it's sort of an art of like navigating the client through this. Like, okay, we got to right. focus on like five things here, you know, that's it. And everything else can be said as like an annotation or, you know, but what are your priorities? Like, right. What's the story? Who's it for? Um, and, and all, you know, once we understand like who it's for, what medium, is it going to be a desktop or like crazy big multi-touch display wall or something like that? Right, right. Then um, we can kind of decide, okay, how creative can we, how conceptual can we get with our creativity or, oh, it's for Scientific American. Okay. You know, we can't get too, we can, we can play, but we have to, everything has to be very, the methodology has to be very statistically 
viable, mm-hmm. you know, um, so that scientists can get excited. And, and it does really open doors for us in the scientific community um, at times, you know, and other times they're like, what the hell is this? Pink? I'm black. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't the challenge with a good data visualization is telling an artistic story, right? Like it's not about, it's not just about the numbers. It's about the story that you can tell with it, you know? Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, just, I try not to ask yes or no questions, but I definitely did. <laughs> well, I, th- I think with, you know, everyone has, there's, this has been around for a while, but the concept of like big data, you mm-hmm. know? Um, I like small data, you know, and like, like understanding what is a row? Like, tell me what the row means. What generated this? Was this a sensor? Was this a right. human? Was this a researcher? Oh, it's a researcher. Tell me about that researcher. You know, there was um, a, a project that we were working on <clears throat> with UC Davis on, um, it was on um, basically molecular biology data and they were doing swabs and they were sequencing these and it was very complicated stuff um, <clears throat> to try to figure out what kind of colonies of like microorganisms live in different places. And like mm-hmm. one project was a researcher that was doing swabs on a fish tank. Well, there's this one guy that did swabs on his face. Okay. And it's kind of crazy, but it's like different areas of your face are going to have different colonies of micro organisms right like really when you get down to like the really minute molecular level like oh and like there's one colony like right between his eyes because he wore glasses and he would touch them okay richest the richest variety of of colonies there you know and it's it's interesting to hear these stories because then it's like oh that's the thing people are going to be interested in and i think the one thing i always try to play with is our work is creative in nature like our process it's a creative process Mm -hmm. And I would say we're really inspired by like Carl Sagan and like the Apollo mission, this idea of like working with these scientists who are like, er, I don't see the idea. Why would we need to put a golden record on this, you know, <laughs> um, and try to connect, communicate with aliens. But the right. reality is most of us humans out there, people, those of us with like empathy and curiosity and we hear about these stories and it's, fascinating you know yeah. and then it makes us very even more interested in the apollo mission of like oh that's how they took pictures of pluto right. and saturn and, <laughs> and and you know it's this engagement it's like but on that on that spacecraft is a golden record that has a shelf life of <laughs> billions of years you know and by the time it might ever if it's ever discovered by anything ever we might be long gone right and, it's just fascinating to see that to understand that and so it's really this idea of how do you tie in humanity through creativity into something that otherwise looks very scientific very inhumane very oh let's look at climate data it's like no let's get people to care about climate data or drone strikes these aren't just numbers these are humans you know yeah i think i yeah there is a there is a it's not discussed. I mean, it's probably discussed in the circles you run in, but it's not really discussed all that much. Uh, the responsibility of the visualizer to the data that they're presenting to be, you know, to make it interesting, but to be accurate, you know, like it's cause you can paint 
you can paint with whatever brush you want. So people that choose to make it about patriotism and whatnot with the COVID mm. thing, they will, they will choose to paint it in a different way. Like, look how, look at how this is not as affected as this area, because this is the one we want you to look at, you know? It's like journalism is what I would say. Is I, It's I, exactly like journalism. Yeah. In a way, uh, what I, I think it is, is that if you have a reputation, if you can disclose your methodology, you're going to garner respect mm-hmm. from people. If you don't, and you're like a Fox News database douchebag, and you do these shitty visuals that are completely inaccurate statistically yeah. and everything else, um, don't put your name on it. You know, and they <laughs> usually don't. It's just like a Fox News thing. But right. it's, you know, there's that. It's like if you have a crappy reputation, you're, that's what you're going to get. And I think yeah. that people who might try to skew it, you're right, though. It's subjective. You get to decide. But you can't really paint the current situation in the U S is a good example mm-hmm. with our response to COVID there's, you cannot paint it in any way that really would say that we're doing good right now. No, no, but like <laughs> if, if, if there was no and people do, if all you had was the map or if all you had was, were the numbers of daily yeah. occurrences, the, the, the frightening thing is that with, the way the administration has dealt with it is to just internalize the numbers and take them away from public viewing, you know? And I think that's obviously problematic because it becomes a, a matter of, well, no one then really knows what the, where we're at or where you're at in the U S. And they're trying to reduce it. It's I mean, yeah, that deals with credibility of the source, you Mm -hmm. know, like um, what is that? Can we trust this source? Yeah. the numbers coming out of Russia right now or Brazil. It's fascinating when you see the graphs, mm-hmm. Brazil is like, like almost like sawtooth. And it's probably because of cultural, like on certain days of the week, they report more. Yeah. On other days they report less like Sundays in the U S Sundays and Mondays are the low days in the U S right. Because God doesn't mess with the religion. <laughs> right. <laughs> you see Russia though. And it's this like perfect fine little line that every sure. day of, you know, and it's, you know, that stuff is being manipulated. You know, and, and you think about having seen the, that miniseries Chernobyl and how Russia just yeah. locks it down and, and, you know, nothing leaves and it's, they report the truth that they want you to know. Yeah. And the same thing with China, really, you know, most fascistic countries have that kind of issue and you're watching it happen here, but it's in the most ham hand, ham fisted way possible while still maintaining the popularity of the right, you know, like it, as an outsider, I am entirely bewildered by what's going on in the States. Cause it just feels like I don't understand a single thing that's, that's ha- happening. You know, I don't either. I, I, yeah, I don't, I've got, I grew up in Arkansas, dude, and mm. I've got, you know, family there and I do my best to reach out and talk to them. But, it's and we have multiple things going on. There's COVID and the, the sort of inter social economic response or social cultural response mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. And it's politicized so much. But then you have other movements like Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Where I'm like I'm like logging my kids into their school and my daughter's principal is um uh she's not white and she has a Black Lives Matter shirt on her like avatar, you know? Sure. Which is 
the thing I love about the Bay Area, it's so diverse. Mm -hmm. And I took a screenshot of that and I sent it to my niece who's in Arkansas and she's, she's an artist and she's liberal and she's confused because everyone there is against Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter there, whatever. And I sent it to her and I was like, just imagine how people in Arkansas would respond to this principle. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, everyone would lose their fucking minds, you know? You know, since it's the most, I find it, it's incredible to think that you can't, that America can't possibly have one crisis, the crisis that it has to have multiple crises at the same time, watching people on from the conservative side of things say that, you know, we don't need Medicare for all. We're like, you're, but you're in a, global pandemic like everybody should have health care <laughs> everybody should have health care no yeah you know i'm like okay let's put that aside someone get you know a, a, a cop shoots a, a black guy and it's the, from the right they're like well he should have been resisting well how what level do you need to, you yeah. know cops sh- shouldn't even kill guilty people like they there's a right. ju- judicial system at play in your country and most countries that extra judicial procedures like murder aren't meant to happen by cops. So, right. You know, I like, have you done any kind of delving into the throw wildfires and hurricanes on that shit too? Wildfires and hurricanes, (laughs) man. What happened to murder hornets? Like, it's just that you guys had the trifecta right there for a while. I think that the, the, the most insane part of it is, is watching, you know, it, it isn't about, it's strange to see it being politicized in a way that makes no sense. The shooting in Kenosha um, mm-hmm. by the, you know, by the teenager. Um, and the cop, you know, well, the cop, it's, yes, it's the, which and... instigates the riot. But then, you know, this teenager that, that crosses straight lines with a, you know, a firearm. And then people are surprised that he shot somebody. I'm like, well, right. uh, he's a thin blue lives kind of guy, a thin blue line kind of guy. Like he, right. You know, glorified the police and, yeah, I don't know. But so the, the, the question I have is like, I'm all, I get really riled up when it comes to Black Lives Matter because I just can't understand the concept of still believing that they don't, you know, or it's not, it's not that I think the thing is that when people complain about the Black Lives Matter, even just the statement and come right. back with All Lives Matter, they have some, it's like this deep seated guilt that they know that they're part of it, you know, and they refuse mm-hmm. to acknowledge it. Like the privilege that you and I as white people get just aren't there. It's not, it's, yeah. it's not being, yeah, white dudes even. It's just not shared amongst the entire population. So whenever other, another white guy says like all lives matter, I just feel like, oh, fuck off guy. For real. Like you don't. Yeah. It, and there's not even much you can say. Like it, it's so, it's such a different set of values, you know, mm-hmm. like I usually just say, listen, dude, if all lives mattered, the Black Lives Matter movement would not exist. Right. right? Yeah. And like, fuck off with that shit. And yeah. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I used to try to explain stuff. And then I just realized like, people just don't want to fucking hear. You well, know? somebody had posted a fantastic, it was a little comic strip and I can't remember the name of the the thing, but it was like, uh, the, some theory is like bullshit theory that like, it was called the bullshit, the BS theory that like someone could, say something the the ability to believe in stupidity something stupid is easier than accepting the truth so like yeah this person saying like the moon is made of cheese and the guy's saying well you know we have plenty of samples from the moon that proves it isn't made of cheese and the person just goes 
Yeah, but I think it's made of cheese. You know, like it's it's this idea, and it's, I mean, we're very there's a lot of faith based thinking here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I think when you ha- deal with faith based beliefs, you you are in this place where because you believe something, you be- it, it must be true. Yeah. And you can't not believe it because it, it puts into right. question every other belief you have. It, it deals with feelings, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's like, oh, I, I feel like this is the truth. I'm suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. And it, even if somebody comes at you with facts, information, if you're not a critical thinker, who are you to not crit- like doubt that like source, like, oh, okay, these scientists came up with this. Yes. Well, who are they? Like, what are they making up, you know? Well, I mean, I think the, 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 big, the big problem becomes that it, it, it's a house of cards. You know, your, yeah. if, if your faith can be shaken by this one thing, then all your, you have to question all of it. And, and that's what happens to a small majority of people is they, they recognize the error in their faith and they correct it to become a bit more logical and, I don't know. There's an interesting thing. You see it often. Someone will say, like, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Like, at one point, they 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 thought of themselves That's as California. religious. <laughs> well, it's not. But, I mean, you know, it, yeah. it, 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 there are people who have accepted that science is a thing. You know what I mean? And they yeah. they can someone can be spiritual and, and, and believe in a higher power, but realize that that higher power probably didn't do all the shit that – or doesn't have the same kind of control – I am not spiritual. <laughs> I'll just say it right now. <laughs> I had a religion I'm, class when I was in when I was lived in Quebec. I had this religion class, and and the guy was teaching creation, and I mm. I was twelve, I was thirteen, something like that. And I remember saying to him, "There's no way God did any of the stuff that required millions of years to do in seven days." And he said, "Well, you have no idea how long a day is to God." And I was like. Right. You know, like that right. to me was like, that was, that was a man doing his best to teach a class and still have a bit of logic in something that isn't entirely illogical. You know what I mean? Like I felt for someone like me who was questioning everything that helped me to accept this one thing, you know? Sure. Yeah. There's a, there's a really good book, Harari's uh, Sapiens. And it's a really, it talks about us as homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. Um and what so and we're sort of the last human race on this earth right. there were several different forms of humans and homo erectus homo florentine there's different ones neanderthals we were actually living at the same time yeah with neanderthals. yeah i've read that and they're like stronger bigger brains and all mm-hmm. this but what our superpower was to like defeat them basically was our ability to make shit up our imagination yeah, right we could rally behind a cause there's mm-hmm. no other creature on this planet who can do this in our way like religion hierarchy schools systems i mean there's really good things that come out of it where we have this idea of like oh we need to find more efficient ways to get to the moon you know and let's right. do that and that's great but then we have these ideas of like how did we get here and oh it must have been spaghetti monster god and or this god or that god and so i just kind of like you know what we're all humans we all have our beliefs we're all different and those are good i just i wish that people would respect the fact that just because you believe something doesn't make it reality you know right 
yeah. it's your reality, but it's not everyone else's. And mm-hmm. so, and, and that needs to be respected and mm-hmm. everybody's, you know, and it's, um, and that's just, that's, I can't live any other way, you know, it's cause it's like, otherwise we're just fighting and fighting and it's a nonstop thing. Yeah. It's you like, know, we just need to get over ourselves. <laughs> do you, do you find, um, is the, the purpose behind what you do, is it mostly about education or inspiration? Like inspiring other people by the thing you're doing or the thing they see? By the work that we do, sometimes it's just, it's educating, but sometimes it's also just inspiring. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of facets there, I would say. Um, I like the technical challenge. I like the, but I really like the creative challenge. I'm like, okay, because it's solutions. You're given constraints. You're in, how do you find solutions to this? I like to really be focused on solutions. If there's a problem and there's not a solution, I don't want to hear about the problem. Mm-hmm. Like, like let's, you know, if, if you're just like, and that's kind of going back to this country, you really see one side of the aisle is really talking about the problems, you know? Yeah. And if we vote for Biden, this horrible shit's going to happen. Like it's not already happening. Right. Um, where there's no vision there. There's no like solutions to problems. And that's a problem, a big problem with Trumpism. Yeah. It's not a visionary ideology it's just, it's more of a, it is the cancel culture. Yes. <laughs> They're canceling out what liberalism, you know? And yeah. so, and I guess that's my, my take is the work I do. I like to inform and people will be like, Oh, I didn't realize that. But I also just like to, I like to make things beautiful too. And mm-hmm. where people are like, Oh, I'm really inspired by this. Right. Like it's, there's something nice about being out, like seeing a, a really nice piece of work or being outside and just being able to see the sort of beauty in something and it energizes us in a certain mm-hmm. way. It's hard to put words to it, but it's just like, oh, wow, this, this is so nice. Like Libs's work, like your wife's. Right. I have her quilt hanging in my place. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. And One of her earliest supporters, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. You know, I, I've thought about this a lot and I, I wonder if you could sort of elaborate on it, but one of the things you, you used to, you would ride from Madison to uh, Minneapolis, you know, to, to attend IO and, and uh, flashbelt before that, but you would ride, you, you, you took big, it was like a big long ride, uh, mm-hmm. but you always talked about how much you loved it. And, you know, yeah. as a rider myself, um, I don't ride for fun. Like I don't ride to look around, but it is interesting on slightly longer rides where you can get into a real Zen mindset where, you know, there's little traffic and going as fast as you need to go. And you mm-hmm. can just start looking around and really see the landscape. And because you're so exposed, you're way more attached to that landscape than you are in a vehicle, like in a car. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered with you having picked up uh, rock climbing, mm-hmm. um, is, is it rock climbing? Does it have another word? Spelunking? Not spelunking. That's cave. <laughs> no, mountain climbing? I, mostly, I do rock climbing, mountaineering, and alpine. Alpinism. Okay. Like alpine climbing. Would you say that, that the, kind of, the kind of mindset that you can get into where you are so uniquely focused, mm-hmm. um, is that kind of an offset of the data visualization work? I think that data visualization really 
busies my brain a lot. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking about it. When I discovered climbing about four years ago, over four years ago, I just, I jumped into it very mm-hmm. passionately, very, very deep. And, and I do it a lot now. I mean, Yosemite is three and a half hours for me. Right. And that's just the Mecca of, of rock climbing. But um, it quiets my brain. Yosemite? You're really close to Yosemite? (laughs) Yosemite. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's, it's, there's something about the experience for me personally, where I get a planet. Like you don't just jump on a rock and be like, I'm going to see how hard this is. Yeah. There's grades. There's very specific measurements and grades and difficulty levels and the length of time it's going to take and the type of equipment you need. Mm-hmm. So you have to plan it, which is already, I'm, I'm good at that. I do right. that shit all the time. I, it keeps it. It's fun. But then when you're on the rock, um, even Monday, I just kind of bumped out there to activate a week long reservation. Cause I'm going to go there again tomorrow. And I, I was like, Oh, here's a mountain Mount Hoffman. I'm just going to go up there. And it was like, 3,000 vertical feet of gain. Mm-hmm. I did eight and a half miles a day and I felt really good. Yeah. Um, but just being up there by myself, there was actually a moment where I was just very emotional about it. I'm right like by myself. I, there are a couple of marmots around me or something, mm-hmm. but it's like, wow, this is so close to home. Um, but while I'm climbing like a ridge or something that could be actually quite dangerous if your head's not in that game, just like yeah. motorcycle, you know, yep. like driving, riding a motorcycle, if you're not paying attention, you could die. Yeah. And so you're forced to be in this focus, you know, mm-hmm. watching all the cars you're going by, what license plate, are they from out of town? Yeah. Any swerve, any, like the minute, the minute swerve, you're like, head above the headrest, like, like making sure, yeah. like if you're driving, if you're riding past cars that are parked, you look for the head in the headrest, you look for eyes yeah. in a, or a face in a mirror just to see, are they going to open the door? Like, yeah, there's, there's a, there's so climbing, much the same thing, right? Like yeah, just it's, it's, the it's amount the of attention. Focus. But what's nice about it is you're not around anyone else. Right. So you're just like, oh, I need to focus on, like, you're, there's so much, like, mind-body connection with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know that this hold is going to hold a certain way. And this right. rock, you've tested it, and it's you and this, the elements. You can feel them. Mm-hmm. You feel your muscles pulling through. You have this exposure sometimes below you, like hundreds of feet that you right. can see in the corner of your eye. And if you're not accustomed to that, it's really fucking terrifying. Right. But it's when you are accustomed that you're just so laser focused in what you're doing that it's you're calm. You have mm-hmm. to be calm because fear is always there. It's always like, hey, yeah. what the fuck are you doing? You mm-hmm. should be at a computer right now. Like, why are you doing this? Yeah. And this conversation with that fear of like, listen, I know you're here. I know you're trying to protect me, but you're actually making things harder for me, you know? <laughs> And, um, and it's just great. I, I don't know. You know, I know it's not for everybody and it's not something I even go around and try to promote, but it's, it's something that I somehow personally, I just found, um, I go into climbing gym and I just jumped into it. And it's like between data viz and rock climbing, like those are my two main, yeah. main passions. You know? Yeah. The people that I know that climb, they are, I, I'm going to say passionate, but they, they, they definitely, they become if if you if it speaks to you it speaks to you you know like the people mm-hmm. i know that climb they just it's 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 like a religion like they they get they intentionally make themselves healthier so that they can do the thing that they love yeah. to, you know it's a like you see you have you have looked 
health, you look healthier than you did, (laughs) you know, 15 years ago. I'm in like the best shape I've ever been. Yeah. Because it's all about strength. It's all about maintenance. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, you don't, you don't do things intentionally to hurt yourself. Yeah. Right. But I mean, that must, does that help your practice? Does that help your, so you're, you can concentrate better now? What do you feel? No, because I'm usually thinking about climbing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if I can only make a career out of this, I would make it as my hobby. No, I think it's um, really quick though, to your quote, there's this movie that came out last year. It's more of a documentary called the mountain. And there's a really good quote at the beginning of it. And the quote goes something like those who dance might seem crazy to those who can't hear the music, Mm. you know? And it's really that it's not like, it's not a a religion I would try to convert people to or say, this is great. You should try it. It's like, no, no, no. If this makes you feel uncomfortable, please don't do this because you can die. Yeah. You know, you have to know what you're doing and know the risk assessment. And, and I've, I've done a lot of first aid training and ambulance yeah. training. And, yeah. And so, but I think that going to my practice, it helps in a way that I think it helps more of just how I manage my psyche with my work and how to deal with clients. I used to right. be more temperamental. Like I'd work with clients and they'd have stupid like feedback that I'm like, that's stupid. I don't agree with that at all. Right. Where I think today I'm able to give myself more of a pause Mm -hmm. and just be like, Hmm, that makes me feel really upset when I hear that. Let me think about how I might want to respond to that. Whereas before I would just, I would react and today I respond. Hmm. I think that's a big difference. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I used to, I used to liken my, more calm demeanor from having kids because Uh it's terrifying being a parent. It's terrifying being a parent (laughs) right now, especially, but you know, the minute I became a parent, I realized like, why was I mad at anything? You know, like there's Mm -hmm. this beautiful little thing. Help me out. Um, I probably could use climbing or something (laughs) or something along (laughs) those lines. I I mean, the, the nice thing about it is it's, it's an individualized, thing but it doesn't it it doesn't have to be a solo thing like you climb by yourself but you can climb with others yeah and even funny so is because my climbing relationships my partnerships with climbing those are harder to establish than actual like relationship relationships right because you're it's it's trust and it's skill level and it's like okay you might go gung-ho on this that's fucking dangerous fit to me i'm not going to do that you know right but I've got a really good climbing partner now that I, his name is Kyle and he's also an artist. Hmm. And it's great. So we, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. Kyle Dunn is his name. He actually has a show right now in Toronto. Really? Um, oh, pretty. Wow. Yeah, really cool stuff. And so, um, but he's also a really good climber and we have really complimentary skill sets. Like we've, we climb the Castleville Ridge on Mount Shasta, which is the most technical climb on the mountain. And, hmm. We did it really smooth and nice. You know, it's, it's, it's like he's younger. He's, he's got more strength. I'm sort of older and I've got the brains. I've got the systems down <laughs> and the safety systems. And, you know, I'm the one with kids. So I've got shit right. to lose. So I'm like, yeah, I'm not putting anything at risk here. Um, <laughs> but it's fun, you know, and, and sometimes I just go out by myself or sometimes I just go out with other people, yeah. you know, like depending on what, what it is that we're doing. But living here in California is just, it's a treat for that. You know, it's, yeah. 
it's it's everywhere. The and mountains are everywhere, right? Like it's yeah, it's in climbing gems, and there's rocks even in the Berkeley Hills mm-hmm. that have a lot of history to them, and and yeah, you can. And I have a van, of course. <laughs> well, that's a thing. <laughs> like, of course. I, I, I swept up my uh, motorcycle for a VW van. So oh. a lot of out here have vans. Just because of the and equipment and being able to sleep near where you're going to climb and stuff like that? Exactly. Or? Yeah, I throw all your gear in it. You can sleep on off the side of the road or just out by the, you know, like there's no glamour to the camera. Oh, my God. Such a hippie. Um, dirt bags, <laughs> but I'm definitely not a dirt bag. <laughs> but there's a name, like that's actually like a, a name, an esteemed name to be called a dirt bag out here. Okay. Um, for the climbing community, because it means you're like really dedicated and you don't have a job. And, and that's all your dedication is climbing. And, and there are people who actually do that. Yeah. Know? How do they, whatever. That's, this is, that's not pertinent <laughs> to this episode. Yeah. I don't think. I, I, you know, and, this is what the podcast is. I think it's important cool. to get a glimpse of the actual person because you can look up the mm-hmm. work. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. I, like I can, yeah, I we can look up pitches work. I'm, I'm more interested in what brought you to do the thing you're doing. We covered that. Now what I'd like to talk about a little bit is where do you see pitch going? More of the same, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, I don't have this great, like ambition of like we got to grow and do more like i always want us to challenge ourselves mm-hmm. we're going to be evolving how we evolve i don't know it, you know i i would like to keep continually doing more social justice environmental but we are you know like we're yeah. happy with what we've got we do yeah. a lot of this work and so i think that it's it's kind of like it's maintaining it's like if you got a really good engine and you're on the highway and you're going really good what you want to do is maintain that engine. You don't yeah. need a faster engine or a bigger engine. It's like, this is doing exactly what I want it to do. Yeah. Uh, if I were to, if the team were to grow, it's more people for me to manage less climbing. Like it's, and that's one thing about our team too, is like, it's really adamant about a work-life balance. Yeah. You know, when it's five, be done, you know, um, unlimited paid time off. You want a vacation, take a vacation. I don't want to count it. Like, you know, right if it feels like it's being abused, like we'll do something then. You know, that's been taken advantage. But if the work is getting done, let's get the work done. And some days we have to work a little bit harder than others and everyone gets that. But for the most part, it's like, we got to keep this, keep a good, like a community within our team. Like we're close together, Mm -hmm. we work together. And we really, um, yeah, I'm always exploring these ideas of like, hmm, what kind of, if we were to bring on a new designer, you know, and if anyone listening to this really feels like they've got a good, they've got a passion in data viz and they've got a portfolio set up, you know, I, I definitely am looking at potentially hiring a full-time designer, hmm. um, maybe one more fresh out of school, right? You know, like that we can sort of homegrown, homegrow and, and, and sort of teach yeah. from that. But, um, you know, I'm look, always looking at how to reconfigure, how to, you know, we're, things are going to always change and it's always being ready for that. It's, mm-hmm. So I'm not, when I say more of the same, I just like high quality, having, yeah. sticking to our values, you yeah. know, being creative with the work that we do. I got what you, I got what you meant. <laughs> you're not sitting back. I mean, I, I, is there any, are there any mediums that you're kind of hoping to get into um, beyond strict digital or print? a really good question i mean we work with a lot of different mediums anyways from like sometimes textiles or 
user interfaces for games or things like that we've done in the past. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, the digital space, I think if there's a medium I'd like to get into more, it's probably like personal devices like watches and stuff. Right. You know, like if somebody has, and I've seen this on some of these Garmin watches where it's like, here's the time, but inside the time shows a percentage fill of how many steps you've done today. Right. So it's like in, integrated within that. So you don't have to, you just like look at it throughout the day and you can intuitively tell what's going on without even seeing the numbers. You know, right. it's just sort of how do we find ways to more intuitively educate people about things mm-hmm. um, without necessarily needing that technology. But, you know, it'd be really cool to see like, you know, when you look at fruit or produce at the market and you see these little barcodes, is there something we, tiny you can put on there to say like, what's the percentage of, core principal vitamins that you need every day that this might fill. Right. Um, you know, that would be a long shot, but that'd be nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like to see things and I always have these questions of like, Oh, how nutritious is this? You know? Right. And right. I have to go home and do research to find that out. And it'd be nice to have something more intuitive. Well, it's, it's like, I, I've, I've been following a, a visual artist named Johnny. Uh, Le Mercier, he does a lot of mm-hmm. light and fog work mm-hmm. um, that I think I'll, I'll share it, but it, it, he does, he, he's become really active in um, uh, ca- calling out coal mines and like big, oh, yeah. big expanse of coal mines in Europe and going in and, ba- and pr- projecting onto, you know, legislative buildings and where they are. And he's been calling out Autodesk and, He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's basically like become an activist while still doing his art. Um, and I wondered, I mean, it, it feels like data visualization is, is almost like a, I, I want to say it's an impassionate activism. It's not like waving a giant banner over your head, but it is informing dependent on what the story is. It yeah. is informing and, and, and trying to educate and it is an activism in its own way it's a tool for activism. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a way of someone's like, Hey, there is climate change. And other people are like, Oh, that's a hoax or you right. know, whatever. It's like, Oh no, let's look at let, what do you want to see first? CO2 levels. Do you want to see temperature change? Do you want to see fire intensity yeah. change mm-hmm. over the last couple of decades? And specifically, you know, there's so much data and research around that, but it's, it's tools. And so sometimes it is, um, dampened in a way of like, yeah, it's, it's not like this, you're going out screaming and with billboards and stuff. But um, some of the stuff that we do, I think like with the drones piece, it was this, it got out. So, so many people saw it. Yeah. And it was just, you just see it in your own personal space and it kind of makes you gasp a little bit. Well, it, it, it's more contemplative if anything. Yeah. I mean, as opposed to somebody mm-hmm. screaming in your face and pointing a finger and telling you you're wrong there's this opportunity for you to, to look at it and digest at your own pace. And I mean, yeah. your, the choice is whether or not you say, yes, I, I agree with this or no, I don't. But, but the, the ability to sit back and, and look at what you're consuming and actually take time to consume it versus this, like this information has to be 10 seconds long or five seconds long because we're going to lose the attention. You know, I think, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the advantages to data visualization. It is. Yeah. And it's, I think the key for us has always been like, how do you engage people? Because mm-hmm. if you're just showing like an Excel, you can say that same data 
the drone strikes in an Excel bar chart, you know, randomize the colors and, and show that. Right. No one's really going to be interested. But when you tell the story in a compelling way, and it's the same for, for books or film or, you know, songs. If you tell the story in a compelling way, it's a really good tune. You're going to be more engaged, you know, if you hear it. And you're going to be more engaged to it. And then you want to listen to it some more. And yeah. then you want to internalize it, you know. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm internalizing. I can see this now. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the goal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, the, the trite comment recently that's been coming up more and more and it's happened in the past couple of years is, is advertising people calling themselves storytellers. Right. And it's, it's a, it has bothered me to, to no end. Someone's like, we are storytellers. And I'm like, you aren't. You're not, you're not telling a story. In most cases, you're not. But it is the, it is the advantage of a, of a visualization that is incorporating data that it is actually telling a story, you know? But I do like the fact that you don't have Picture Interactive where storytellers. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I know that bothered, it's definitely has, I saw that that bothered a lot of people, like even Sagmeister and stuff. I, it just doesn't bother me. I'm kind of, my take is like, you know what? Accountants are storytellers. Mm-hmm. We're all, we're all humans. Like we all have our own stories. My guinea pig is a storyteller. Well, to watch for a little bit. yeah, I find that, that when advertisers do it, it's a way of trying to legitimize consumerism. Like we're, yeah. we're, we're telling, you need to hire us because we're going to tell the story of your hamburger better. You know, like it's just, yeah. you know, and it's, yeah, and, and but would would you expect anything differently? You know, of course that's what they're going to do. That's, no, I don't expect anything differently. I am still in advertising. You know, it's but I've yet to hear anybody at, at Thinking Box say we're storytellers. So I'm glad because I would have to say like, no, you're not. You know, <laughs> I would I would appreciate it. I think if advertising agencies just kind of what, what it really is is we practice the art of persuasion. Yeah. It's that is you know we are persuaders. <laughs> yeah, you know that that's a, actually a great um, show on the CBC called The Art of Persuasion, and oh, it's really? and okay. it's yeah it's a guy who studied advertising and I, I can't remember actually I'll look it up. Damn, I thought that was like I was like being unique and creative there. No, <laughs> well you were being <laughs> unique and creative. Not knowing about it doesn't mean you were, you stole it. The Art of Persuasion, uh, CBC, CBC. Hold on. The Age of Persuasion, The Age of Persuasion, Under oh. the Influence, The Age of Persuasion. Yeah. Terry O'Reilly. He's great. Like it's, he, he talks about, you know, the history of, um, the history of various things like, oh, Coke or whatever. And, right. and talks about their, their advertising campaigns throughout time. It's very, very cool. The Age of Persuasion ends in the era of influence begins. Oh, so that would be a good story to hear. Anyways, I highly recommend it. He's, he's engaging in his, in his, his um, narrative style is quite good. I think he'd like it. Cool. And he's yeah, Canadian. I'm going to check think. it out. <laughs> I think he's Canadian. Even better. <laughs> um, so, this I may be really, it. Speaking of Canadian, this is a, a closing mm. thought. Okay, good. Because I was going to ask you ponder. for a closing thought. It's just kind of unrelated to anything we've talked about so far. Oh, okay. Still However, good. I have this theory that this 
pandemic and this lockdown and we're all in our own countries and our own locations and everything. I've been hearing it more around here, but I really, I'm very fascinated with dialects and accents during okay. up in the South and Oakland's got its own too. Sure. I have this theory though, that this is like adding to this proliferation back to like regional accents and dialects more. Hmm. So I'm curious to see, I mean, yes, we are communicating with each other, you know, over Zoom calls and whatever. Sure. But I'm really curious about if there are linguists out there or people might look into this, that if you're going to sound even more Canadian after all this. <laughs> uh, you know, probably not. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was, I, it was funny. I was, I was in the studio recording an episode and afterwards myself and the, the engineer, Jeff, who's done a lot of film and, and animation work mm-hmm. said, you know, <clears throat> you do, you know, you say a lot of words as an American. And I, I said, yeah, Oh, that's, do, but that's because of you guys. That's because of going to conferences right. and speaking in the States and having someone say, say about, you know, and like make me say it. So I sound, you know, like, I'm just like, I don't know what this is. I'll say it the way you think I'll say it. And then, and then I'll just say about, you know, like it's, it's mm-hmm. such a weird thing. Cause the way we say is a boat, you know, right. And I, I once pointed that out. It's like people say it's oot and a boot, but it's not, it's out and about. So we, it's more boaty, you know, but yeah, I say, Wisconsin pro- kind of had that. I say process. So Canadians say process. Right. And all of that comes down to Americans and hanging out with Americans for so long that now I say process. I have Americanized a lot of my dialect specifically because of the amount of time I spent with Americans. And one of our main, like half of our staff is American. So we're okay. always on Zoom calls with Americans and, you know, and they're all in Utah or LA. And or I think York. what I'm wondering more though about this local accent is not you and me so much. Is like Oh, not at all. No, I didn't think you were talking about population. me. Because I oh, see yeah. her like my daughter, for example, and the way she was talking for a while, you know, she's 12 years old and she's saying hella and all these different <laughs> words all the time. And I was like, why are you sounding like that? Like, is right. This, and then I, one of my neighbors who was born and raised and grew up in Oakland and is a school teacher here, he sounds so much like my daughter. I'm like, oh my God, this is a dialect in Oakland. Yeah. And, people yeah. Are, and, and then once I, once I heard it more, I would just, I walk around the neighborhood here and I hear, I hear this and I'm like, wow, this is kind of fascinating to see yeah. if there's any sort of linguistic study or, you know, and I'm just curious about random stuff like that i I just but i but i think that that's a i think that's a valid question because you know the first time i'd gone into the states uh on my own with a buddy we drove from uh, ottawa to florida Mm -hmm. you know kind of straight down it took us 26 hours every time we stopped i was hearing a different thing you know carolinians speak differently than georgians georgians speak differently than floridians and you know so on and so forth and i right. it just blew me away i could not get over it because in my mind ontario without it even with it being a vast uh, province still everybody sort of speaks the same like there's not right you know mm-hmm. and even province to province for the most part until you get into the maritimes most people speak the same way. Once you get to the Maritimes, it's all bets are off. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Acadians sound more like New, or- New Orleans, uh, people from New Orleans, Louisianans, 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 Louisianans. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a, and, 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 and to, I think you're probably correct. I think that in, in the case of this 
the way the insular um, attack on spreading out has happened is I think that a lot of people, unless they are consistently and constantly in contact with other regions, they will probably start to adopt, readopt the dialects they've uh, abandoned. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, but whatever, I guess that's just me being really <laughs> bored because I'm like, it's a pandemic. So you can't go anywhere. So it's like, let me make bread and kombucha and cheese. And Oh, let me listen to everybody's accents. Cause I know. Oh my God. I, yeah. I have been, busy. you know, I, I've said it numerous times, but I have been very, very lucky to have a job and I, yeah. Um, to not, I mean, to worry about whether or not I get to keep my job, that's a real thing. But, but to have a job throughout this entire thing, get a paycheck every two weeks and still be able to do the podcast and the conversations right. that are coming out of it, you know, they are night and day from before. Every conversation mm-hmm. is night and day from before. You know, everything we are talking about is peppered with what is happening. And it's, it was easy, you know, you could, you could have a conversation that involved art whatever writing you could have that conversation and and it would just be a conversation the second this happened it was how are you doing are you doing okay you know and and like how's your family it's i'm more i've become more concerned with other people's states you know and it's it i think what's nice about speaking with you is 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 because I follow you on Instagram, because I, I know you relatively well, um, it, it is Thank really you. gratifying to watch you enjoy your life. It's the only way to survive. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I've realized. I saw a fantastic, it's not fantastic, it's a very sad quote, but the quote is that we're all, um, we're all on the edge of a breakdown and we're just waiting for one person to go first, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how calm you can make yourself, no matter how much, you know, you're able to get your head around your day at some point you're by yourself and your, your thoughts are, holy shit, what's going on? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, going back to the solutions, like that's, I've gotten really fucking good dude at making bread, sourdough (laughs) bread and I mean, I'm just like, you know, when I, this whole thing hit, I was oh we're all freaked out. You know, we're all like, what mm-hmm. is going on? And I've definitely, I'm at the point now where I'm like, dude, we're going to be in this for a long time. Long time. Number one. And it's just like, all right, well, what, what am I going to do with, with myself? You know, and it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting to watch myself go into a different mode like we've all like how have we changed i'm curious like when when we're out of this you know we can you and i can go meet back in brighton again Mm -hmm. go to a restaurant together and have a beer Mm -hmm. and how can we reflect like a full circle you know we should do that the effect well yeah i'd love that i think that would be amazing i here's okay although i said we're probably done we are pretty much done but i want to talk about the last time we actually saw each other and it was 2016 in the spring. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife and I were driving up the coast. We were doing this amazing road trip from uh, LA to Portland, Oregon, um, which again, like who gets to do that now? I don't know. But um, you were living in, you, you weren't actually where you are now. You were closer to SF, right? Like you, you weren't having to take some big old trip to get to us. 
from what I can recall. I, no, I've always lived in the East Bay. Um, okay. For the um, eight years that I've lived out here. Okay. But I was probably in Oakland. I, mean, I live in Oakland now, but I've lived in Oakland and Berkeley and just around here. Okay. But no, it was kind of the same area. Okay. But well, anyways, I met you in SF. I remember that. You did. Yeah. And we sat down and we were talking about the election, this election year. And, and, and I, I, I feel like you have that $10 bill. You should put it up. Um, oh, was it, you said, I said something like, it's hard to know that, that Donald Trump is going to be your president. I'm going to give you 20 because <laughs> there's interest. Right. <laughs> That's gotta be like 50 bucks Canadian. Um, oh, <laughs> that was nice, Siri. Siri didn't like that comment at all. Um, but the thing was, is, is you, you actually said to me, I, you said, no, Donald Trump will never be president. And I was like, oh man, I don't know. That's not, that's not how it's going to go. And from my point of view, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling anything about it. I just was, it's like, I was just saying what I thought was what I felt like it was just Trump's going to be president. I wasn't happy about it, but I wasn't angry about it. And you said, mm -hmm. I've seen the data. You said, it's going to be Hillary. I've seen the data. And I said, look, with all due respect to your data, America is at eight years of a black president. They're never going to let a woman follow it up. And it, here right. we are, you know, it could I mean, have been any male against her and she wouldn't have won. I don't think. You know, I mean, she did win the popular vote. We can go into this or whatever, but... No, um, and she did. Fine. But the Electoral College is a piece of garbage. You know what? You're right, and I was totally wrong. And the data I was looking at, we were working with Google Trends data and, like, uh, what people were searching for, search interests all sure. across the country and stuff. And actually, the data was right in front of me. Trump was always the most searched for person. Always. Yeah. yeah. And it was almost just like cognitive dissonance. It was just like, I don't want to believe this. So this is not real. Yeah. And I remember watching election day and I was in Poland flying back while the election was happening. Oh, wow. And um, the good thing in California is like everything's mail-in ballot here. And even to the, for this election, I just got an email the other day. It's like, you can sign up and have your ballot automatically tracked. So it'll right. send you notifications when it's received and when it's sent there, and, mm. which is great. Um, and, but I remember flying back in like each airport from like Warsaw to Frankfurt to San Francisco. It's like, as we landed, <laughs> new results were coming in. It's like, Oh my God. Oh, oh no. Yeah. And so, and then when I got to the office, I went straight to the office. Cannabis was legalized in California. It didn't need, you didn't need a medical permit. It was like recreationally legalized. Sure. I walk into the office and we, we just had a joint. We lit it up. <laughs> We're like, this is legal. We're going to, we yeah, yeah, here we are. So we watched and, like the labyrinth with David Bowie. Just like how far from reality can we get right now? <laughs> <laughs> and it's been, you know, three and three quarters years of, or three and a half years of just <sighs> insanity, insanity. Uh, just, you know, yeah. I'm sorry, Upsetting. man. I'm sorry that's what you're going through. I'm sorry that this is what America's going through. I'm sorry there are people that support him. Uh, uh, this is my hope. And I, I know it's not going to happen because it's, it's not happened yet. Is that yeah, the what's people, your prediction this time? <laughs> I suspect Biden's going to win. Okay. Um, Good. I, but I don't believe that Trump will accept it. I think that, that right. it's going to spur a civil war and you're going you're gonna to be mired in a civil war in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, you've heard it here first, folks. I mean, I'm not happy about that. 
I just, it's, it feels like that's what's going on. He's setting the stage for not giving up power. Like that's just what's happening right now. Um, And it's sad to watch from the outside because the people that I know are reasonable people, but the people Mm -hmm. that are voting for him are not. So what I was going to say was what I, what I would like to see is I would like to see the people that enabled this entire administration throughout get some manner of punishment. Like this is Mm -hmm. like, even to the extent of Sean Spicer at the beginning, all the stuff he's done, he got to be on dancing with the fucking stars. Like it's like, it's a joke that that people get to walk away from helping him. And there's, and there's no repercussions to them. Right. You know, fucking mooch whatever Scaramucci or whatever, like he can, he right. gets to like fucking tweet and talk about, you know, Oh, the, the president's messed up now. I'm like, you helped him. You helped right. him, you know, like or it like just Steve Bannon, you know, getting arrested. Steve Bannon. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> so Steve Bannon, like, <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's going to be all I hope right now. I just want some restoration. Like we, we've, we, this is, our chance to either rise above yeah, and we, and Americans, we, we have the ability to do that at times, you know, yeah. um, maybe we will this time or not. It's the end. I mean, the yeah. world dynamic is, is, is going to be completely changed after COVID. Yeah. This yeah. idea that America's the best is absolute bullshit. Yeah. We're not the best at anything right now. Like no. on what? Healthcare or education? Warmongering. I mean, warmongering. Wow. You're probably you're pretty damn well, I don't good. Know. But North Korea is pretty good there. Sure. You got the numbers though. Yeah. You got the numbers. I mean, we're the best at being the worst right now. Yeah. Is what we're the best at. So but what I, I'm hoping though is like we have this ability. Like look at California. It's a very progressive state. And its ability to tolerate and think about climate change and enact you know, uh, legislation that really supports that. It's just that um, this is our chance and, and we can either rise up or, or not. But the one thing I, I've just realized more and more is like this election is not about logics. It's about feelings. Yeah. You know, everyone's voting on their feelings. There's a few people out there, less than 1% are actually educated on the policies and want to hear about those. It's mostly what are my feelings right now? And, and we're, yep. we're feeling pretty fucked up. In this yep. country, you know, and so I hope people take those feelings of frustration to the polls, and and we can start to recover and and sort of make fundamental. And I really hope that this gives us an opportunity to make some of the fundamental changes. People wanted a shakeup with Trump, mm-hmm. and we got it. You know, he's yeah. shooken everything up, and possibly, you know, with that shakeup, there might be some really good benefits that come out of it. Some like really overhauling. Maybe we will adapt the metric system. <laughs> oh, well, it'd be nice if you taxed your billionaires so that, you know, that infrastructure too, yeah. could get paid for and Medicare for all could maintain itself. And, and like we had a social network, a security system and maybe a sense of community in this yeah. country, which we don't, you know, yeah. it's all selfish. So. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the, the one nice thing about the whole, this whole situation is that there is an attorney general in New York who's just waiting for Trump to be out of office, mm-hmm. right? Like he is going to be charged with a ton of shit when he's out. Yeah. So really, I hope. yeah, 
No, I don't think Who it's a hope. I think it's definitely going to happen. Like, I think he, for what sure. What if he just takes his family and they like hop on a plane and they disappear in Russia? You know, he will like, never disappear. That man is such a narcissist. He will never allow himself yeah. to leave the limelight. He will stay until that's the true. bitter end. You know, his family you want to will, bet on will, will <laughs> fetch ten bucks. Uh, you know, like his family will will try to disappear. <laughs> well, I can't give you change. It'll have to be over PayPal. Ser- serving another billionaire's interests. Um. No. Anyway, sorry, geez. Um. It is a. It, it is such a, you know, tumultuous time, and I, I have been very privileged to talk with people like you who have inspired me for a long time. And I've, I really appreciated having this conversation with you tonight. Yeah, thank you, Hugh. It's, it's always a treat talking to you, you know that? <laughs> I, I don't, but I appreciate the. You're just like a warm, fuzzy teddy bear I want to hug all the time. This episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content in this episode is copyright Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Intro voice is Jeff Wright. Opening and closing track is Watch Him They Said from the 2018 album Hypocritic Oath by Not Of. All inquiries can be directed to admin at cancellthispodcast.com. 